welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We are continuing our this fascinating series we started a couple weeks ago in the book of Jonah. So if you would stand at this time, I'm going to read Jonah chapter 3. I believe it's in your app if you want to follow along or if you have your Bible. It is... Uh, From Jonah chapter 3, sometimes people wonder, why do we stand and why do we say this is the word of the Lord? I've been asked that question a few times. Just simply a way of putting ourselves in front of what we believe to be God's voice to us, what he's attempting to say to us through these stories and through these passages. And so we want to be in a posture of humility and receptivity, ready to hear it. And then when I say this is the word of the Lord and you respond with thanks be to God. It's a way of declaring into the chaos of our world that we believe this, that God's word is true. We believe it has something to say to us. So it's a way for us to yet again declare that our hope is in God and that we trust him. So Jonah chapter 3. I'll read all 10 verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Next Sunday evening or late afternoon, somewhere around 5 o'clock, September 27th, Jewish people from all around the world will observe their most sacred day of the year. It's called Yom Kippur. It means Day of Atonement. And if you know a Jewish person, whether they be Orthodox or not, probably next Sunday afternoon around 5 p.m., they will be making preparations to celebrate and recognize Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur occurs right after the start of the Jewish New Year, and for 25 hours, Jewish people will fast, they will confess their sins, they will pray, and they will worship God in a series of synagogue services. It is a day to get right with God in the Jewish tradition. It's why it happens shortly after the New Year begins. It is a day for Jewish people, again, whether orthodox or not, to reset, if you will, with God, to once again come and have their sins acknowledged and 
atoned for to set the foundation for the coming year. And the origins of this sacred day are in the Old Testament. You may remember when Moses climbed Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments from God. And then as he descended the mountain, he saw the Israelites worshiping an idol, a golden calf. And so he smashed the Ten Commandments. It's hard not to think of Charlton Heston right now, if you are of that generation. He smashed the tablets of the Ten Commandments, and then after confronting the people, they confessed their sins, and they asked God for forgiveness. And Moses said he would go before God to make atonement for their sins, and the annual Day of Atonement was born for the Jewish people. And still today, Part of the tradition on the Day of Atonement is to read through the entire book of Jonah, which is the series we started a couple of weeks ago. And you may be wondering, why would they read the book of Jonah on a day when they're remembering the forgiveness that God offers? Well, they read Jonah because it gives such a remarkable picture of God's mercy and of God's forgiveness. And it provides such a beautiful and unlikely example of authentic repentance. Chapter 3, what we just read, especially shows God's kindness toward all who will turn toward him. And God's almost longing to show mercy and to forgive all who will turn toward him. God in all his goodness is on profound display in this wonderful little book. In chapter 3, as we read, just kind of to set it up a little bit, God gives Jonah a second chance to go to this big metropolis called Nineveh and proclaim his message. And this time, unlike the first time in chapter 1, Jonah obeys God. He enters the big city. He finds a busy intersection. He stands up on a box and he delivers this message. And here was his message. It's in verse 4 of what we just read. He said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That was his sermon. Eight words. How wonderful if sermons were a mere eight words. Eight words, get this, spoken to people who were not asking for God. Eight words spoken to people who were not looking for God. Eight words spoken to people who didn't realize they were missing God. An eight-word sermon where God is not even mentioned. And yet, verse 5, we're told the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. It seems fairly obvious God wanted to rescue the Ninevites, and Jonah's eight words is all he needed to reach their hearts. Sackcloth, really nasty thing. It's this kind of scratchy, itchy fabric made out of goat's hair. And it was intended to be uncomfortable. It was intended to be something you don't want to settle into. And it's what people put on when they were in a time of repentance. It symbolized repentance and brokenness before God. So get this, Jonah's hated enemy, the vicious and violent Ninevites, heard an eight-word sermon. It's actually only five words in the original Hebrew. And we're told they believed God from the greatest to the least. Rich, poor, young, old, male, female. Whatever scale you want to go down. They believed God. They trusted God. They repented. 
they fasted, they prayed, they sought after God with fervency and urgency. An authentic revival broke out on the streets of the evil empire after eight measly words where God is not even mentioned. Eventually, as we're told, the king of Nineveh hears Jonah's message, and he steps off his throne, he removes his royal robes, he puts on one of these nasty sackcloths, he sits down in the dust, we're told, a broken and repentant leader who is beginning to come to terms with God. And then he declares a time of fasting and prayer throughout this massive city, a time of fasting and prayer for both humans and for animals. No food, no drink for people or for cows. Why? Because in the king's words, as he says it, who knows, God may relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And the king turns out to have been right because the final verse of chapter 3 says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God changes his mind. And instead of judgment, he shows mercy. I have to tell you, this is an absolutely amazing story, this book of Jonah. It is so remarkable, and it's so full of extremes. Many people don't believe it actually happened, and they consider this to be a parable. And maybe this book is a parable. The point is not lost either way. The book is full of all sorts of fascinating extremes and contradictions and paradoxes. Things that leave us scratching and shaking our heads, kind of going, what? How does this work? Here's a few. Jonah the prophet resists God while the pagans respond to God. Jonah the prophet runs from God. The pagan Ninevites run toward God. God is all ready to punish, but in the end, he shows mercy. Contradiction, tension, and paradox. What should happen doesn't happen, and what shouldn't happen does. All to stress the point, God cannot be tamed. He does not fit into our neat little narratives. He surprises. He shocks. He is not like us. Or in the language of our current series, God misbehaves. I was telling some people this week how reading the book of Jonah in preparation for this series has been surprisingly disruptive to me in a way that I have found I desperately need. I've loved the way this short little book has unhinged me. It was so unexpected. In reading this a few times through, I've found myself struck with a new vision of who God is, a fresh vision of who God is. Reading through this has exposed some complacency in me, especially this chapter 3. It's rattled me to read about these Ninevites and their response to God. Reading through this book in this chapter has raised some hard, but I think helpful questions for me. And so today, I want to share three hard, but hopefully helpful questions that at least are rattling in me as I read chapter 3. Now, these are the questions that I feel like I'm being asked. 
They're aimed at me. They're not necessarily aimed at you, but they may be helpful to you or they may prompt you to consider your own questions this fascinating story stirs up in you. So three questions that come to me and are being asked of me out of chapter 3. The first is, how does God see my enemies? The Ninevites I dislike, disagree with, or don't understand. How does God see Mike's Ninevites? How does he think of them? How does he see those who think or believe or vote different than I do? How does God see, and now I'd like you to fill in the blank, with a person or with a group you disagree with or dislike or consider an enemy for whatever reason? How does God see this person or this group? For me, the answer is probably not the way I see them. He probably doesn't treat them the way I treat them. He probably doesn't want for them what I sometimes want for them. See, the Ninevites, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, were as far gone as one could be. They were absolutely far gone. They were violent, they were vicious, they were godless, and they were arrogant. And when the Assyrian Empire was running the world, they absolutely were a torturous regime. They were enemies of Israel. They were oppressors of Israel. They were tyrants of injustice. But here's the mind blow. God wants to reconcile them. See, no one is beyond his reach. No one is beyond his love. God loves his enemies. He loves his enemies. He loves those who reject him. God loves my enemies. He loves my Ninevites, those whom I dislike and with whom I disagree and don't understand. His posture toward my enemies is love and mercy and grace. See, this chapter reveals God's heart for human beings. There are no limits to his love and to his mercy Wherever we try and drive the stakes of God's love and mercy in the ground to mark off how far they extend, put one there, put one there, put one there, put one there. This is how far God's love extends. Whenever we do that, God comes along and he yanks out the stakes and he moves it 100 yards out further because his love and his mercy never cease and no one is beyond it. Second question this chapter stirs in me. Have I made this faith journey too easy and convenient? Or put it another way, am I taking God's grace for granted? Again, I'm not throwing this at you. I'm trying to hear this come at me from this story. In July, I drove to Carl, Carlsbad with both of our dogs, 113 pounds, 185 pounds. For rough numbers, let's say, a hundred pounds of canine flesh in my Honda Accord for eight hours, seven hours. The day before I returned from Carlsbad, I had a hunch the air conditioning was failing. When I dropped out of the grapevine and into the valley on the drive home, I knew the air conditioning had failed. 
107 degrees, I looked at it, from the grapevine to my driveway. It was worse than it sounds. There were times, especially the big lab, he was in the back seat, and I glanced back there, and he's looking out the window. I'm convinced he was thinking, I'm just going to jump. This is a nightmare. I bought a bag of ice at Julie's suggestion, this big bag of ice. I'm dumping it down my shirt. I'm taking blocks of it and chucking it over to the 13-pound Shih Tzu. I'm throwing a bunch of it back to the lab. These dogs are looking at me like I was being abusive to them, throwing ice at them. So now I got the window down. I'm chucking ice out onto I-5 because the ice wasn't working. I will not soon forget that eternal stretch of I-5 with trucks rumbling by as I sat in this hot car with a duet of dogs panting the entire time. At one point, our 85-plus-pound lab Gus was laying down in the back seat, sort of looking toward me, and then he shifted his hips, and for about 10 miles, he just stared at the back seat, just panting with despair. And I assure you, it was worse than it sounds. Now, I don't think much about air conditioning when I'm driving in my car. It's part of the deal in our part of the country. Just kind of there when we need it. We take it for granted. We flip it on in the summer. We don't think much about it until it's not there and doesn't work. And when I read chapter 3 about the way these Ninevites responded to God, by repenting and fasting and falling on their knees. When I read about the king of Nineveh removing his royal robes, stepping down off his throne, dressing in this nasty sackcloth, embracing all the discomfort, and sitting down in the dirt, all because he's heard from God, I begin to wonder, have I, Mike, made this faith journey too easy? And too convenient? Am I taking God's grace for granted in some ways? Have I lost some of the edge in this journey of following Jesus? Or put it this way, has God's mercy and grace become like my air conditioning? I'm used to it. I flip it on without thinking about it. It's always there whenever I need it. But maybe grace has lost some of its amazing to me. Maybe life and busyness and COVID and bills have turned grace into my car's air conditioning. It's just kind of there. I think about this story. Just think about this. Jonah was the prophet. The Ninevites were the pagans. But which one really understood the magnificence of God's love and mercy? and grace. Which one really experienced it? These Ninevites were stopped in their tracks by God's love and by his mercy. You heard me read it. They went to the ground. They sat in the dust. They repented. They realized how off they had been, how wrong they had been, and they turned around. They turned around and they turned back toward God. It was good, and it was liberating, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't convenient. It didn't just sort of happen in the flow 
of their regular life. There was a stripping down, a descent into the dust. Maybe there's a principle here. Maybe those who crash and burn and hit rock bottom really are the ones who get God's grace and mercy. And maybe those who manage the crash and the burn and just sort of skim the bottom don't quite get God's grace and mercy. What does this look like for me as a Christ follower? This picture of repentance and pursuit and seeking after God. Not trying to create this dark cloud of heavy-handedness. Simply trying to ask the question, what does it look like for me to be in an ongoing journey of repentance, this ongoing journey of me turning back to God again and again. Last question, what's my vibe? Judgment or mercy? This question jumps at me out of this story. What's my vibe? What's the vibe I give? Judgment or mercy? When our kids started to drive, I would ride along as a passenger. This still happens, by the way. And as I was riding along with them, without trying to, happened automatically, I noticed their mistakes. Every last one of them. I saw their mistakes. I felt their mistakes. That's my vibe. That was my vibe, and they felt it. Everything they did, one hand on the wheel instead of two. How fast are they going? Did they see that guy over there? Look at them. They're glancing at their phone. All I was honed to was their mistakes. That was the vibe, and they felt it. Dad, the driving instructor, instead of Dad, the dad. Dad, the corrector, instead of Dad, the encourager. Dad, the judge, instead of Dad, the merciful. My vibe was judgment, not mercy. And I think most of us tend to default to one of these or the other. Certainly there's degrees. But for the sake of it, I think most of us tend to default either to judgment or to mercy. You've been around people with a judgment vibe. It's exhausting. The constant correction. Good, good job, but this would make it a little better. You've been around it. The grading the clipboard, the hmm kind of a thing, the disappointment, the never enough. And you know as well as I do, eventually, no one wants to be around someone who's carrying this judgment vibe. This chapter makes me think about my vibe. Is it judgment or is it mercy? Punishment? Forgiveness. What do I lead with? What do I promote? What is my default? Verse 4 in Jonah's, in this chapter, Jonah's sermon says, again, these eight English words, five Hebrew words, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And the word overthrown, fascinating Hebrew word. Hang with me for a second. It has two possible meanings in Hebrew. In 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. It can mean turn over, as in destroy. This word was used when, it was, when the Bible talks about Sodom and Gomorrah being turned over, 
being destroyed. So overthrown can mean turned over, as in destroyed. Jonah wanted it to mean destroyed. Jonah the prophet went and said, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. And just get in his head for a second. He wanted overthrown to mean wiped out, turned over, destroyed. Judgment was his vibe toward the Ninevites. But overthrown in Hebrew can also mean turn around, as in change or transform. So it can be a hopeful word. Change is coming. In 40 days, Nineveh will be transformed. Nineveh will change. Transformation is possible. See, mercy was God's vibe to these vicious and violent Ninevites. Jonah wants it to mean destroy. God wants it to mean change. Jonah wants God to punish. And here's the thing I hope we get. God wants to show mercy. He's planning judgment, but he hopes for mercy. What about me? What's my vibe? Punishment? Mercy. How would those closest to me describe my vibe? Am I a punisher or do I offer mercy? You know, jumping off these pages in this chapter, we see this incredible picture of God eager to forgive those who turn toward him. We see this picture of God itching to show mercy to those who turn toward him. You say, well, but wasn't God planning to destroy Nineveh? Yeah, he was. He was planning to destroy it. He was hoping they would turn ever so slightly so he could show them his mercy. Is that the God you worship? He will act justly, but he wants to act mercifully. He wants to show mercy. And at least for me, when I see this God emerge out of chapter 3 of Jonah, I realize he's not like me. He's not like me. And this is part of his greatness. This is part of his exquisite goodness. This is part of his beauty. See, God misbehaves. Thank God he misbehaves. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for your truth, for these stories that point to something unexpected. They point to the reality of who you are, not what we want you to be, not what our wounds need you to be, but to who you actually are. A God of exquisite mercy, a God who will do what is right and just, and a God who absolutely longs to show mercy, to be kind even toward those who reject, to display kindness and show mercy 
that those who reject might turn around. Thank you for the kindness you show us. For we turn away from you. We go Jonah's way constantly. We run away. We disobey. And we are so very thankful and humbled that your mercy is new every morning. Lord, on this day, we proclaim that you are just so incredibly good indescribably good, magnificent in your beauty, overwhelmingly kind. We are never beyond your reach, never beyond the long arm of your love. And we continue to pray that this exquisite, majestic, wondrous beauty of who you are captivate and enthrall and compel us to increasingly live and surrender to you for in you we find the life we're looking for Lord you are good and we celebrate your goodness today in Christ's name